in terms of advice you would give to the California tenants movement, do they need to primary someone? Well, I think they're poised to do that for themselves, <laughs> really. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with Cal Matters. And I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. And today, Friday, August 2nd on the podcast, the Oregon model. Should California emulate Oregon when it comes to tenant protections and zoning reform? I'm glad you didn't say the Beaver State because I, tweet, so am I. I tweeted the Beaver State and someone was like, that's just saying like saying Frisco. And I've been shamed, shamed. Never mm. again will I say the Beaver State, like I've just said the last three times. So no one in Oregon calls it the Beaver State. That's right. Yes. Yeah, I feel like almost intuitively you could have put that together. <laughs> Isn't one of their mascots a beaver? Oregon State, yeah, yeah Corvallis, mm-hmm. yeah. Liam, do you want to talk about more about what we'll be talking about? Yeah, so— Since it's based par- mostly off your reporting? So I did a story that ran a few weeks ago. Please check it out. Um, we talked about what happened in, in Oregon, which is that they passed um, a major legislation first, the nation re- legislation that uh, caps uh, rent increases for tenants statewide. They also passed uh, also first of the nation legislation that um, allows for uh, four pl- duplexes up through fourplexes in single family uh, only Including zones. triplexes. Including, yes, um, in almost all of the state or almost all of the developed areas of the state. And again, um, uh, listeners to this podcast will certainly be familiar with the fact that California has been trying to do these things, but uh, has not. So I went to Portland, a uh, rough trip, I know, um, to try to figure out what happened in Oregon uh, and, and, uh, and why they're able to do things that California has not been able to do. Um, And we should say, I think a a lot of the focus of the conversation and in our interviews is politically how the groups that were uh, uh, sponsoring these bills were actually able to get them passed. Yes. As opposed to the specific policy trade-offs implied in this legislation. I don't know. There there was a twinge of guilt during the course of the interviews. Doesn't rent control stop construction? Like, we didn't ask these sorts of questions. We have many other other podcasts where we talked about these things. Or or isn't, you know, fourplexes uh, community character? We didn't really go into much of that. Exactly. And again, with lots of other episodes where we've talked about these things explicitly. And we have the perfect guests to talk about these topics. Who are they? So our guests... uh, uh, starting with Mary Kyle McCurdy, she is of the group called A Thousand Friends of Oregon, which is behind uh, what I'm calling the fourplex legislation. And then uh, we also have Pam Fan, who's from the Community Alliance of Tenants, the group that was behind the rent cap bill. And again, the underlying question, how Oregon was able to do it and the differences politically and policy wise from what's been going on here in California. Now to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is the avocado of the fortnight. Our look at the most absurd uh, California housing story of the past two weeks. And typically for longtime listeners of the pod, um, the avocado has some whimsy to it. There's a there's a degree of levity or fun. That is not the case with this avocado. No, uh, the story comes to us this week from uh, Matt Tadoko from KPCC, the uh, one of the NPR affiliates in LA, um, about what happened to a homeless woman's belongings in North Hollywood after she received a visit from Mayor Eric Garcetti. And this story was so good and so kind of sadly, cruelly ironic that we're just going to play for you the full four minutes of audio from from Matt, who is a friend of the podcast, although he's never been on the podcast. L.A. is spending big to try to get people off the streets, but sometimes it seems like the city is working against itself, especially when it comes to how it cleans up homeless encampments. 
Everything was in there. My husband's tools. Matt Tinoco has the story of how one woman lost all of her belongings just minutes after a visit from L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. Chriselle is about 5'5", blonde, middle-aged, and she has the weathered skin of somebody who lives outside. She was in foster homes as a kid, like about 15% of L.A. County's homeless. When I was 19, I was aged out with a $200 check. Bye, good luck, have fun, with no ID, no nothing. These days, home is a dirt embankment between a plant nursery and a busy street in North Hollywood. About a dozen makeshift shelters and tents line the block. I met Chrishell during a visit to her encampment with L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. What's up, brother? What's up, man? The mayor came out to see firsthand conditions on the street and to talk to neighboring businesses. See, the city gets thousands of complaints each month from business owners and residents who want the encampments gone. But how L.A. deals with those complaints? Well, it can work against other efforts to get people off the street. Garcetti starts his visit with a round of handshakes. I've seen you on TV. Yeah, TV ages. <laughs> Caseworkers with the mayor give one woman a temporary motel voucher and get her assessed for further assistance. One of the things that's kind of magical is as mayor sometimes I can make the difference of whether somebody will say today's the day that I'll actually uh, come off the streets. Well, today is not the day for Chriselle. Nice to meet you. Bye, guys. We head to another location, but I come back to this spot later. 20 minutes after I arrive, a white garbage truck pulls up to the encampment. Two city workers throw a couple of shopping carts into the truck. To my eye, the carts are clearly packed with somebody's belongings. This happens right where the mayor was promising help for the homeless. I run over to talk to the workers. What just happened? The carts? Yeah, legal dump, I guess. I got reported. When did they call you? About like 45 minutes ago. This was just afternoon which means they would have gotten that call less than half an hour after the mayor left. It turns out the dump they hauled off was all of Chriselle's possessions. Everything I own is gone again. Chriselle tells me she'd packed up the carts to take with her to the laundromat. No ID, no nothing, no medicine, no nothing. It was all in there. Cell phones, food. My kids' pictures, everything I own, like my clothes. I have only the clothes on my back now. Ask any homeless person in the city of Los Angeles, and they'll probably say something similar has happened to them. Multiple times, even. Although city rules say confiscated property is supposed to be stored and made available for pickup. On the day Chriselle lost everything she owns, L.A. was scheduled to do more than 50 encampment cleanups. Yes, the tent cities are a health and safety nightmare. But do the cleanups work? Even L.A. County's top homeless officials say no. An encampment swept away one day often just comes back the next. Plus, it can undo any progress people in the encampments may have made to get housed. Like Chriselle. She lost her ID, plus contact information for the outreach workers who came along with the mayor. The ones we pay to get people off the street. How are we supposed to better ourselves? I have no, like, I'm optionless. I wanted to know who called for the truck that took Chriselle's belongings. When I first asked the mayor's office, they said they didn't call. So I asked the Bureau of Sanitation, and they told me they had no record of the pickup. The second time I called the mayor's office, they acknowledged that, oh, actually, someone with the mayor that day did call. About some empty shopping carts. Except they weren't empty. And now Chriselle is a few steps farther away from housing. Covering homelessness, I'm Matt Tinoco. And one more note. 
The mayor's press secretary sent KPCC a follow-up statement, saying the carts were removed because they were blocking a parking lot, and they deeply regret the loss of personal property. Uh, it's a pretty heartbreaking, hell of a story. Yeah. Hell of a story. You want to weigh in at all? No. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I, mean, I don't have anything to say. Yeah. I, yeah. All right. Yeah. Good job, Matt Tinoco at KPCC. Let's move on to the topic de Fortnite instead yeah. of de jour. What's the French word for Fortnite? I don't know. I don't know the French word for week. Can I ask you something? Yes. So I know you speak Spanish. Más o menos. Oh, God. <laughs> Let, let's not do nope, that. Nope. Keeping yeah. <laughs> that in. You seem like a guy that took French in high school. Didn't, know. I, okay. took, actually, I was I, wrong. I took Spanish Latin? and Latin. Uh, ah, yes. Latin. <laughs> it was Latin. I knew it. I knew it. So the topic du jour, how Oregon accomplished many of the things that certain portions of California's housing political class have been trying and failing to accomplish for some time. Liam, let's start with the two bills themselves that were the focus of your story. What did the bills actually do? And let's start with the rent cap bill. Yeah. So I'm going to name these bills because our guests uh, to you know give the, the name and numbers of them uh, as they talk. So the, the renter bill is Senate Bill 608, uh, and this creates an um, annual cap on rents, which, which landlords could not, uh, could not go over, uh, also adds uh, just cause provi- provisions so that there could be no evictions without listing a reason. And that cap is uh, 7%, allowed 7% increase plus inflation, so roughly 10% a year is what's now allowed uh, in in Oregon, and no rent hike could exceed that. And that's now law. That is now law. And let's compare that to the bill that is still alive um, in the California legislature, AB 1482 by Assemblymember David Chu from San Francisco. Yeah. So it's it's the same percentage. Um, and there are some distinctions. You know, there are some carve outs when it comes to new construction and things, smaller landlords that affect kind of both communities. Um, the, some kind of di- distinctions there. But kind of the main difference uh, at this point is that um, David Chu's bill would only last for three years. So it would it would automatically expire. Uh, whereas the Oregon bill, that's 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 perpetual. That's set. So. And just for clarity, the Oregon uh, rent camp bill does have an exception for new construction. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the fourplex bill, the yeah. zoning reform bill. What is that bill in Oregon? What does it do? So this is uh, HB 2001, uh, and this legislation um, affects uh, communities that are over uh, 10,000 people, uh, cities that are over 10,000 people in Oregon. So for the cities that are over 10,000 people, there are no more uh, single-family-only zoning duplexes. Right. Uh, So two houses Um, in communities that are twenty five thousand and larger and the entire Portland metro area, you would have to allow uh, fourplexes in single family only neighborhoods. So uh, interesting clarification. It's not a fourplex on every lot. It's you have to would have to allow for up to fourplexes in uh, in those single family neighborhoods. Oh, interesting. Elaborate on that then? Yeah. What exactly does that mean? So it's interesting. I mean, I, I got to this level of technical uh, detail that I did not quite get into in my story. It's um, not that. It's important. No, it, it's it, what no, it, it actually it, it, means. It is, it is important. Um, but basically, whatever plan that a city were to come up with that, that had to comply with this law, that they don't have to put a fourplex on every single piece of – or allow for a fourplex on every single uh, single-family partial. They have to allow it in the, those neighborhoods in some way. And so ultimately the state is the arbiter of whether that kind of meets the spirit of what the law says. Um, mm. But, it, again, it doesn't have to be a fourplex on every lot. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is it possible that within certain segments – 
certain sections of certain neighborhoods, that would be the fourplex territory, and then the rest of the neighborhood is still single-family only? It, it, it sounds possible, but again, these are all, all require the individual local governments to pass kind of implementing legislation, uh, and that that's what we'll sort of see exactly how it looks across the state. Okay, and then uh, briefly, and I know this is going to be tough, but uh, compare that to the last iteration of Senate Bill 50, Senator Scott Weiner's attempt to upzone California. Yeah. So this says nothing about transit. Obviously, Senate Bill 50 said a lot about transit, you know, four to five story um, apartments um, uh, near sort of the mass transit lines. This says nothing about uh, high opportunity areas, right? This was kind of these these job rich areas, um, uh, kind of near good schools and new new uh, good jobs, where uh, under SB 50 you would have been allowed to have um, maintain height limits but have unlimited density. So uh, less aggressive than both of those things. Uh, but there was another provision that said in in most single family areas around the state you would have been allowed to build fourplexes by right. And so this uh, Oregon bill is most similar to that last provision of SB. So before we get into the reasons why Oregon was able to pass some of these bills that advocates here in California have struggled to pass, let's talk about the housing crisis in Oregon um, compared to the housing crisis in California. Yeah. So uh, 4 million people in Oregon, obviously like 10% of the size of California, right? Um, pretty small. Pretty small. But, you know, everyone's heard of Portland. I mean, Portland's like a, you know, a, like Austin, like your Seattle, like your, your growing kind of More city. like Austin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Seattle native or Seattle uh, man. Yeah, Seattle man. <laughs> it's, a, it's just the world's saddest superhero. Flannel and lattes. Um, but anyway, Portland's growing um, and growing a lot of jobs. Uh, also houses at, at a rate higher than California metros. Um, but it is funny, you know, I, I talked talked to Oregon Governor Kate Brown uh, and some other leaders in the state talking about their the statewide housing deficit. And, you know, we're hundreds of thousands of units short, right? Which is funny given that we also, we talk about California shortages in the millions, right? Yes. So that's a sort of scope. But median home price statewide, uh, about $345,000, which is r- roughly what you see in the Stockton metro area. But um, rental and home prices in, in Portland, Portland, right, are higher than Sacramento, but lower than L.A. So that's kind of the, the band at which we're talking about. And I, I just just to reemphasize something you said, their job growth proportionally has been higher than California's. Yes. And their building, their construction growth has been higher than California's. Over the past, what, what was it, a decade or half decade or yeah, whatever remember, the time period was? I don't remember was. the time period that I looked at it specifically for the story. We have a neat little graphic in there. Yeah, but, yeah, but the Portland metro area has been growing both jobs and housing at a greater rate than L.A., uh, San Francisco, and uh, San Diego metros. That is the scope of Oregon's housing crisis, which is a legitimate housing crisis. It is tempting for Californians to sneer sneer at um, those in other states complaining about affor- affordability. But talk to people in Oregon and this, much like in California, this is one of the biggest issues that everybody confronts, right? Well, well and it's funny, maybe we can lead into the the, the kind of the, the nuts and bolts here this way. You know, uh, Oregon House Speaker Tina Kotek was kind of the main character in my in my piece because she was behind uh, the author of one of the bills, the, the, uh, the fourplex bill, uh, and one of the key drivers behind the um, the rent cap bill, she told me that, look, you know, we're just trying to keep Portland from becoming San Francisco was like a direct quote that, that she gave yeah. me. And, and you hear that in a lot of places uh, where yes. they, they look at California and say, oh, God, let's we don't want to be that. We don't want to be that. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the reasons why both of these pieces of legislation 
were able to pass. What is the biggest reason, the most compelling reason from your perspective that uh, politically advocates made this work? You know, that's a really good question. I mean, I think all four of them identified are, are important. I mean, I think maybe the why now question, um, I would say the um, the uh, success that, that renters had at the polls in, in Oregon in uh, 2018 in particular. And this this um, obviously has more to do with why the rent cap bill su- yeah, succeeded, but, although also— Yeah, you know, I think also, too, it, it kind of says, look, we're doing housing this year, I, you know, I think is what the—you know, kind of what that, um, that success— um, uh, was and so I'll explain sort of yeah, what, what happened. What happened in 2018? Yeah, so um, there was a um, a similar piece of legislation that would have advanced a um, sort of more robust uh, renter protections in Oregon, and that failed by a, a one or vote or a handful of votes in the state senate uh, in in 2017, and so. Um, uh, Oregon uh, ad- renter advocates really organized and uh, uh, targeted a longtime state senator Democrat from Portland who was a landlord himself and very much opposed to these sorts of renter renter um, bills. And so he got primaried, which is a very rare thing uh, that happened in Oregon. He lost by a lot. Um, and and there were a few other, you know, pro-renter uh, legislators who won. Oregon's Democrats won a supermajority in both of their houses, uh, which gave a lot of um, a lot of momentum to passing something significant uh, in Oregon when it comes to comes to renter protections. You know, once that happened, um, and this is in my piece. I spoke with the head of the largest landlord association in Oregon who told me uh, once those results came true, the quote was, the tide had changed. We knew we weren't going to be able to stop a renter yeah. bill. And and that really changed the dynamic. Knowing at least how California lawmakers, the incentives that they respond to, That's right? right. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to um, sit in at somebody's office, right? It's one thing to flood them with, ema- uh, flood them with emails and phone calls. Right. But I'll tell you what, one thing that will definitely catch a uh, Democratic politician's or a Democratic lawmaker's eye here in Sacramento, regardless if they're in a safe seat or a competitive seat, right, is if somebody gets primaried. Right, or just loses. Or just loses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, On this issue. This is somewhat different because it wasn't a, a primary, but it was in a similar vein. Look at what happened with uh, Democratic Senator Josh Newman. That's right. Former Democratic Senator Josh Newman. Um, of Orange County, who voted yeah. for a, a gas tax increase and ended up being recalled and replaced by a Republican. Mm-hmm. Democrats took note of that. Yeah, and are much more skittish about passing similar legislation now with the threat of that recall um, having happened. So why don't you think California tenant groups have tried to primary a lawmaker here. There's lots of lawmakers you could yeah. choose from. Well, unless you remember too, I mean, this also happened in New York. You know, New York State had uh, a significant renter protection bills that that just passed um, because they had a lot a lot of success at the polls um, for individual uh, legislators winning there where they had not in the past. I think you know um, it's interesting. We haven't asked any of the ten groups this question. Are they going to do it? Yeah. Are they going to do it, or why haven't they done it? And I think uh, from my Mind. I mean, a lot of the energy, and this sort of speaks to a distinction between uh, Oregon and California, has been has been behind the initiative, right? Yeah. You know, Proposition Ten 
uh, last November, which would have expanded rent control statewide, uh, you know, $100 million campaign, um, all the energy is going into that, right? And individual, you know, rent control campaigns around around the state. That's where people spent their time and effort and their, their money. And, you know, it turned out the other way. Um, you know, you had a 20-point loss for um, Prop 10, close to 20-point loss for Prop 10 here in California, a definitely different political dynamic. In Oregon, you had a dynamic very friendly to renters. Look at just what happened. They yeah. won. In California, they lost pretty badly. And it's it's obviously not just a matter of organizing and resources being devoted to Prop 10. Um, it's the fact that it lost so overwhelmingly. Right. Whereas in Oregon, you didn't have anything for the Landlord Association to say, look, the voters have spoken. That's right. They don't want anything like this. We're not going to budge on even something like a rent cap. Right. And to that point, the, their, their response was, yeah, the voters have spoken. Oh, and no. And we're scared. And we're scared. <laughs> and we're scared. And yeah. we're scared, yes. Um, let's move on to some of the other reasons that both of these pieces of legislation ended up being successful. So there, there's some con- historical context here I think is important. You know, uh, Oregon, yes. a, a state government, has a much deeper involvement uh, in housing uh, than California does. Um, uh, Oregon set up an, er, in the 70s, mid-70s, set up an urban growth boundary, quasi-judicial land use court, and there's a nonprofit. Uh, this is Mary Kyle's nonprofit, as we speak to her later, that's sort of considered the keeper of the law. They were the That group was a key driver behind this. The guardians of growth. Yeah, the Guardians of Growth uh, ending of this single-family zoning um, uh, uh, bill, and so by having that kind of, um, unlike in California, where the the you know not this is not to say local control isn't um, a significant issue in in Oregon, but it is less sacrosanct there than it is here in California. And the ethos behind this was an environmental ethos, Indeed, right? It yeah. was. We don't want you to build out anymore. That's what an urban growth boundary is. You know, the, the California Environmental Quality Act um, uh, is sort of the state, you know, again, passed around the same time. Yeah. Like it's a sort of this kind of and similar to the California, um, you know, housing element law kind of passed around the same time. That's the process that sets up kind of housing goals for. Um, but the, just the the, inter, the level of intervention is just not really the same you know, that in this respect, in terms of pushing things inward, if you yes. will, than, than what you've had uh, for 50 years in Oregon. Well, I, I also yeah. think to your average California voter, the thought of something like SB 50, yeah. the the mental calculus is not, OK, we're building here so we don't have to build out. Yeah, right. You're correct. Everything else is already out. Right. Sprawl is more part of the culture here already, which yes. is arguably part of the problem. OK, yep. let's move to. The other reasons you've isolated, the other two reasons you've isolated why these were politically successful. So I'll speak now about the— again, I think this is good, by the way. Yeah, this is good. All right. I'll speak, let's keep going. I'll speak now about the, the fourplex bill. Um, yes. So um, there was a really large coalition that, that was supportive of it. Um, you know, you had uh, realtors, developers, uh, nonprofits, AARP, environmentalists. But the real distinction um, with this bill in Oregon compared to Senate Bill 50 is that you didn't just have kind of, uh, you know, renter groups and, and groups representing low-income um, communities, um, you know, on the sideline or kind of uh, weakly in favor or kind of some of them, you know, strongly opposed in, in, like they were in California. In Oregon, many of the them were very much in support. Um, and I think that that really set up a situation where the only, really the only groups that were opposed to this um, in, in Oregon were your League of Cities types and your uh, neighborhood, uh, you know, neighborhood single-family homeowner groups. 
So but, it, it yeah. isolated the opposition more effectively. More, yeah. And, and it also removed that argument. You know, um, I think um, uh, you have that, ar- that argument. It was very strong, uh, certainly in the 2018 version of, uh, of this bill, because as many of the low income uh, 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 renter groups were opposed, even in 2019, where there was kind of less opposition, um, less sort of formal opposition. Uh, the argument that, hey, look, we shouldn't do this because we're worried about gentrification, displacement, all those sorts of things. If the groups that represent those communities aren't saying that, then it's a much tougher argument to make. Um, let me ask you this, though. Yeah. Which is a stronger bill, SB 50 or this Oregon bill? Stronger in in terms of, uh, I'll define it as uh, more, more robust, more greater effects. Um, uh, uh, certainly SB 50 is. Than, than the than the Oregon bill isn't that also one of the overriding reasons for why this worked <laughs> is yeah. because it was it's much more palatable to all all different types of groups because it's not going to produce as many units and disrupt potentially disrupt as many neighborhoods as something like SB fifty would. Yeah, uh, no, I that's a very good point. Um, you know, I think um, and maybe we can get get into this now. Um, you know, when I was thinking about this, um, if you had asked me at the beginning of 2018, what is an easier political thing to do in general? Is it allow for more construction near transit lines? Yeah. Or is it end single family zoning as we know it, yeah. if you will? Uh, I would have said allow for more construction near transit lines it seems to be in, in very it's much in intuitive. line and line with the environmental argument you can add to that in a much stronger way uh, but it appears um, given what's happened in Oregon and also you know earlier uh, or actually the end of last year in Minneapolis city of Minneapolis where both the communities ended for all intents and purposes a single family only only zoning that it seems to be easier and an easier argument to make, um, which I, it was surprising to me. I think the key word is fourplex. And yeah. again, we get into this with with the the interviews. Yeah. But people are scared of apartment buildings. Yeah, nobody's scared of a fourplex. Are people really scared of a fourplex? Maybe, but yeah, not but in le- the same less way. So. Less so. You can't tweet a meme of uh, Scott Weiner next to a high rise and then put fourplex on the high rise, right? right? Like it's a fourplex. But that also yeah. means yeah less units that's right being built so there's that's a right. trade-off there yeah. to, to that point um you know i talked a, lot, a decent amount about this when i was up in oregon doing doing reporting but i think for some of the 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 renter groups the idea that the renter bill went first um in the legislative session Good so point. so the 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 renter bill was passed in february um the um uh, fourplex bill passed in the last day of their session in in, in oregon right mm-hmm. um you know I think they used kind of some of the language there, sort of set the table and said, look, this is who is taking priority when we're doing this as a legislature. And that you know, helps foster some trust between some of the groups that may be more pro-development that, um, versus some of the groups that, that are uh, simply there to, to, to push for renter protection. Makes sense. Yeah. OK, let's move on to your last reason. Yeah. So um, and I mentioned this a little bit before, but uh, the Oregon House Speaker, um, Tina, Tina Kotek, was really the main driver behind all of this. Uh, she was the author of the fourplex bill, very much behind uh, the the rent cap bill. Um, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, her state of the state, said, hey, you know, we should be doing these things. Um, I'm very supportive. She helped ensure that there was some some funding that would kind of ameliorate some of the concerns that perhaps local governments w- would not be able to um, plan for these sorts of things. Uh, 
you know, make sure there was more money for low income housing, a lot of support from the Senate president um, in, in Oregon as well. Sort of having that leadership um, combination was really instrumental. And that was not something that we've seen on uh, these bills in in California. You know, the governor kind of famously has called, called, asked legislature, please pass some renter stuff and I'll I'll sign it, um, but was not involved, um, you know, as publicly um, in moving these things forward. In fact, one of his staffers had to apologize for yeah. saying he was doing more advocacy than he was actually doing. Um, and then, you know, uh, behind Senate Bill 50, um, that legislation died, as you know, we've said many times, uh, you know, because the leader of the state Senate, uh, Tony Atkins, did not intervene to to ensure that that bill advanced from a, a fiscal committee. And so, um, you know, Oregon leadership, either the author or the prime driver behind it in California, not the case. Yeah. Um, I don't really have much to add to that. I think that's that spot on. Again, I will. I do want to hedge against making Newsom and making legislative leaders um, appear like all powerful supernatural forces that get whatever they want. That's right. not the case. But if if things are going to move forward, these types of controversial measures, you need them. It's so, no guarantee that it'll happen. Right. Uh, necessary, but not I, sufficient. You took the words right out of my mouth, which speaks to how lame both of us are. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yes. And how we spend too much time together in this studio. Okay. Anything else on, on this that uh, you think we should hit before we get to the interviews? No, I think we're, I think we're good. Okay. Let's head to the interviews. We are here with Mary Kyle McCurdy, who is the deputy director of A Thousand Friends of Oregon. Mary Kyle, thank you for being with us. Thank you. So why don't we start? Uh, we don't really have an organization like yours in California where you're sort of the, and you're going to correct me because I'm going to be wrong, but the, kind of the keeper of this law that was passed in um, the 70s that kind of set the, the state-local relationship for a lot of development. Can you uh, first explain a little bit about that law and B, why you're sort of the, the kind of the vanguard uh, of, this, of this process? So Senate Bill 100 was passed in 1973 by a bipartisan legislative vote and led by then-Governor Tom McCall, uh, also a Republican. And on his last day in office, he formed my organization, 1,000 Friends of Oregon, with one other person because they knew that they needed a non-governmental organization to ensure that this very ambitious and comprehensive and precedent-setting set of laws would actually be implemented and not just gather dust on the shelf. So 1,000 Friends of Oregon was founded, and uh, since then, um, you know, we've grown. We've been in place for almost 50 years now. We are the organization to oversee, uh, watchdog, defend, and improve Oregon's land use planning program. And that program, started by Senate Bill 100, uh, encompasses the entire state, and it basically requires that every city and county adopt a land use plan and set of zoning regulations to implement those plans that addresses 19 statewide goals. Goal 10 is the housing goal, and we have been engaged, my organization has been engaged in advocating for Goal 10 as well as other goals since uh, we were founded in 1975. And so do the cities actually um, try to comply with those goals? Because in California, we have some something of a problem with that. The cities are required to. It's state law, and the land use planning program 
gives the power to enforce those laws not only to the state agency that oversees it, but also to uh, individuals and organizations. So one can, and my organization certainly has brought to court a local government that we believe is not complying with the laws. Now, the laws have been complied with to an extent, but we think they've grown a bit stale and um, cities have grown a bit complacent in ensuring that their plan designations and their zone designations have actually kept up with the needs of Oregonians in terms of household size, socioeconomic needs, location needs, that sort of thing. In, in other words, um, uh, cities may not be zoning for enough housing overall, and especially low-income housing in Oregon. It's really a matter of looking at it with a more sophisticated lens than we might have in the beginning. So uh, Goal 10 requires every city to zone land sufficient to meet the needs of all Oregonians, including at every economic level, including in location and type of housing. And therefore, every city in Oregon has land zoned for both single-family and multifamily mm-hmm. housing. And that is not true in many communities across the United States. Right. But it is here. It's an inclusive zoning um, that is supposed to meet the needs of all Oregonians. But we've, over the years, and as family needs and sizes and income levels have changed, we see that it's not enough just to have single-family and multifamily zoning, but there's a lot of different housing types in between that, duplexes, triplexes, cottages. And in the beginning, those zoning types were pretty segregated from one another, and we know that we have a history of detached single-family, you know, exclusively single-family zones in this country as well as in Oregon. And that's come to be to be recognized as economically exclusionary and not meeting the needs of all. So in the past decade, especially as housing uh, price crunches have hit Oregon and many other places, including California, we've seen that we really need to have this kind of housing integrated in all of our neighborhoods so everyone has um, at least the opportunity to live where they need to live, near transit, schools, et cetera. So um, I want to talk about a little bit about uh, coalition building. That's been a real thing for a similar uh, bill here in California that, that you know, you and I um, discussed when I was writing writing the story. Um, you know, the bill here, Senate Bill 50, uh, you know, has gotten, gotten a lot more support than it had over time um, uh, as it's kind of worked its way through the legislative process, but has not um, achieved the support of a number of uh, or a kind of a lion's share or critical mass of renter groups or low-income groups representing lower-income communities here in California. The coalition in Oregon did, and, and I'm hoping you could talk a little bit about um, whether you know how intentional that process was, um, and, uh, and 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 why you think um, those groups ultimately came out in in, in support of uh, this legislation. Sure, and I can't really speak to why things or the way things have worked out in California, but I can speak to why they've worked out in Oregon for a really broad-based coalition. There's a variety of things. One, many of our organizations have worked together on common issues for for a decade or more, and we have the experience of looking for the things that bring us together as opposed to the things that might drive us apart. So there's a lot of relationships that have been built up over the years, and we have all had the experience of being supportive of the efforts of other organizations and who is leading a particular effort might 
change, but we've worked collaboratively. Uh, so that, that's one, that just those relationships didn't just come about with House Bill 2001. All of our cities, or most of our cities in Oregon, the vast majority of residential land is zoned for detached, exclusively single-family housing. And that's just not meeting the needs of workforce, those looking for workforce housing and those at, you know, as I said, 60% below area median income. Yeah. Uh, and it's not working for many family sizes and older persons. And that's another reason why AARP has been a very active participant in these coalitions. And their clientele ranges the economic spectrum from very poor to to not, um, you know, to not so poor, but, you know, uh, higher income. But they're looking for the duplexes and the triplexes and the smaller attached housing options to meet the needs of older clients and so that's part of the reason why all of us came together. So this session there, you mentioned already there was the renter protection bill, right, right. as well as House Bill 2001, this recognition that we need to deliver on both the supply and the protection for renters, and that was delivered in this session. So you folks were supportive of the renter bill as well? We did, but that reminds me of, a, of another aspect that we're working on in the Portland area getting in place policies and strategies to mitigate displacement. And there's a coalition in the Portland region called Anti-Displacement PDX or mm -hmm. Anti-Displacement Portland. Mm -hmm. And we were a member of that coalition. It's still are. We were successful in getting the city of Portland to adopt about 12 anti-displacement policies and now we are working together to translate those policies into strategies in particular issues, including infill and that sort of thing. So I think, again, there's that awareness and that working together on, in some areas, in Portland in particular, there can be a risk of involuntary displacement yeah. as development occurs. So we're trying to mitigate that. So I want to ask, you know, I spent some time with some neighborhood groups while I was in, in Portland and mm -hmm. they, you know, argued, and I want this is sort of referring back to what you were saying about nonprofit developers uh, saying that they could build if they had the opportunity to do it in some of these single-family zones. Uh, they made the point, uh, the neighborhood groups made the point to me that if, you know, more likely from their perspective is what's going to happen is some of what they're seeing now, which is, you know, one ha old, ha old house being torn down and turned into a large new house uh, for mm -hmm. a richer person. Um what makes you think or 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 wor not worried that um, the result of this bill is one old house is torn down and turned into uh, a fourplex for four rich people? Um, are you not concerned that that something is is a potential outcome or likely outcome of this bill? Well, the city of Portland has done a couple of economic studies looking at those issues about uh, the economics and the displacement, and they have found that. Right now, we're experiencing displacement in Portland by the one-for-one -one teardowns uh, and even the one-for-two teardowns where you can build a duplex. And, and however, where the nonprofit organizations can purchase land to build um, a duplex or a triplex, they are doing that and they're building affordable products. But nonetheless, if we do nothing, the City of Portland studies show if we do nothing, if we don't adopt the Residential Infill Project or Hospital 2001, Displacement will continue and it will increase impacting most neighborhoods in Portland. If Portland addresses, adopts the residential infill 
project, which is similar to 2001. Displacement, involuntary displacement will decrease in most neighborhoods. Uh, so we're seeing now where there are those products that are a duplex or fourplex. It, right now, on the limited amount of land in the city of Portland, which is a single-digit percentage of Portland can be developed in duplexes and triplexes and fourplexes now, um, we're seeing those products uh, go for a lot of money in some cases because there's a high demand for them and uh -huh. the supply is very low. Uh -huh. The answer to more affordable housing is not purely a supply and demand one, that's for sure, but we certainly are seeing the results of very limited supply and a much higher demand for smaller housing products. So why? And hope, yeah. mm -hmm, hopefully, this will this will begin to change that. So an, another thing I saw as I was driving around at some neighborhoods in Portland, and even ones that were kind of very close to more commercial areas, there was a, a lot of places that did not have sidewalks. A lot of places that where there were still sort of dirt or gravel roads um, in kind of again single family neighborhoods that are sort of very close to things. Um, why allow for greater development in those communities rather than trying instead to push for uh, growth in those commercial corridors at perhaps a higher level? Is the infrastructure there, those, if you will? Right. Both of those issues are going on. And in the corridors where there's bus service or commercial services, one, from a good urban planning perspective, would like to see more than just simply a duplex or triplexes right. along some of those yeah. commercial corridors. I'm not knowing exactly which ones you're talking about, but many of those should actually have three and four story, and right. many of them do have three and four story, maybe even higher buildings. Uh, those are places, particularly if they have bus service, that are valuable for even higher density than a duplex or a triplex. Uh, and so that's that's one answer, and we need to allow more of those gentle infill throughout all of our neighborhoods with the duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, that sort of thing. I can't believe we didn't ask this earlier, but why don't you tell us what this bill does? <laughs> House Bill 2001 requires all cities in Oregon, over 10,000 in population, to allow duplexes in residential zones on which single-family housing is allowed doesn't do away with single-family housing. If that's what the market is, well, that can still be built, but it allows duplexes. Then in cities that are over 25,000 in size, those cities have to also allow triplexes, fourplexes, cottage clusters, and townhomes somewhere in their single-family zone. Gotcha. And is there any type of mandate for... Uh, low-income housing as as part of new housing that would be built under these zoning reforms? No. That is uh, that can be done by local governments, and the city of Portland in their residential infill program that the council will be voting on by the end of this year, that includes bonuses for affordability, for accessibility, that sort of thing. So that's certainly something that local governments can do. So on, on that note, uh, I think Liam was kind of alluding to this earlier. The bill that's gotten all the attention and that we've talked about ad nauseum on this podcast in California is SB 50, the previous incarnation, SB 27. And at least earlier versions of that bill, the focus was not so much on ending single family zoning writ large, I would say, but on allowing for 
allowing for larger apartment buildings to mm -hmm. be built near transit. Would that have been a harder sell for you as opposed to, you know what, we're just going to open up all these single family homes to the possibility of building fourplexes? Well, there was a bill in the legislature this session that took a modest step in the direction of uh, Senate Bill 50 and 27, very modest. And, and for a variety of reasons, it didn't go anywhere. I don't think it was necessarily the politics of it. It was just the energy on other issues in, the, in this session. Uh, but um, this bill in opening up single-family residential neighborhoods has sort of had its own life separate from what you've described in Senate Bill 10 of allowing higher-density housing in transit corridors. Because in in Oregon, there's only a handful of cities that have meaningful transit. Uh, mm. So it's not mm. um, – it would not reach as far as those bills presumably would have in California mm. in terms of population reach and reach to communities. And I think there's a different set of arguments that at least in – Oregon would resonate if we were having density and affordable, with or without affordable housing. I can't recall. I guess there, you get a bonus in the California version. But anyway, to tie density to high-capacity transit would be a different set of arguments here in Oregon than the conversations about the need from you know equity, justice, um, and the, just the need of yeah. Oregonians to open up single-family uh, neighborhoods to housing that meets the needs of most Oregonians because they're not being met in many of our single-family neighborhoods. So it's just, I think it's a different conversation or would be here. Wiener's bill specifically, homeowner opposition to it has been fierce. Yeah. And I think the takeaway for me from what you guys did is fourplex is a lot less of a scary word than mid-rise apartment building, which will easily right. get twisted into high-rise apartment building, right? Yes, it's much less scary to talk about gentle infill and frankly, you know, in the conversation gentle infill about nice. gentle you can yeah. gentle infill yes. and you can show photos so of lots of different yes. structures that are basically the same size and scale. Right. And one might be a single family or a one plex, yeah. as you might have seen that cartoon about a one plex and a duplex and a threeplex. But mm. they kind of look the same. You have to count the mailboxes, you know, or the <laughs> utility meters to see how many different apartments or condos might be inside. So there's a lot of visuals that you can use for that and see how they fit into a single family neighborhood that doesn't work so well if you've got a four story or six story apartment building. Does that also mean Does that also mean that this is inherently a more kind of piecemeal approach to solving the housing crunch? I think we need both because there's we have the housing crunch is both supply as well as the type of housing mm -hmm. and its location. And mm -hmm. We've had, for too long, two largest swaths of exclusively single-family housing zones located in those really high-opportunity areas, near the schools, near transit, um, near the you know neighborhood grocery store. And there haven't been the opportunities for people of smaller family size or who don't need or want a yard or might not be able to afford that kind of house to live in those, place, in those same neighborhoods. So it's, supply is part of it, but... Uh, there's also the type of housing that's needed. And an apartment building of eight stories or 10 stories or whatever it is just doesn't match the needs of everyone. We need more diversity in our housing types. So I want to ask about um, the role of the 
the leadership in the state, um, you know, the prime mover is what I've said for uh, these bills or the House Speaker, uh, Tina Kotek, a strong support mm-hmm. from the governor, uh, Kate Brown, as well. Um, can you speak to how significant having leadership not only be supportive, but kind of being the ones behind it, in some cases the author of this legislation, in terms of it, it ultimately getting through both both your bill and, and the, renter, the rent cap bill? Well, I'll speak to House Bill 2001 yeah. on the political leadership. And if you spoke to Pam, I'll defer to whatever she said on the political leadership there. Um, but uh, Representative Kotek, Speaker Kotek, was key in sponsoring the bill, in authoring the bill, in putting together a bipartisan subcommittee to make changes to the bill so that it got out of its first legislative committee unanimously, on a bipartisan, obviously, vote. And it got voted out of both chambers on bipartisan votes. So she was absolutely critical to the success of the bill. And she understands these issues and can talk eloquently and fluently about them and about the you know details of the bill, et cetera. So her leadership uh, and the respect with which she's held by her colleagues was key. Okay, that's it for me. You got anything else, Liam? No. Um, Mary, Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Okay, thank you. We are here with Pam Fan. She's with the Community Alliance of Tenants, which is a, a, a renter's umbrella group in Oregon. Uh, Pam, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I want you to just kind of set the scene for us and talk about the context of how this uh, rent cap bill was able to pass in in Oregon. What happened in sort of the, the year or so prior that you think kind of set the table for this legislation to move forward? Yeah. Well, yeah, thanks for asking. I think, um, you know, and and we definitely look to the many years uh, coming up to the 2019 legislative session as definitely the the work that was done to lay the foundation for the last couple of years worth of work. But I think um, to answer your specific question around, you know, the last year and what kind of that, what we, you know, talk about in terms of what was the secret sauce that allowed tenant protections to happen in Oregon is we really think about um, some of the major highlights, which is essentially um, a lot of a lot of tenant groups and and tenants themselves really started getting activated because of not only the political moment but also because their rents were just too damn high, right? That no cause evictions were being used as as beyond just a tool but a business model to really change the look and feel of our communities, particularly like just hardworking people and families were being pushed out of communities that they'd lived in forever. And so they folks started really getting involved and really expressing politically what they felt and thought. And that kind of, you know, turned entire elections, right? It changed our representation. So for for us here in Oregon, what it did was help to win a supermajority in in our legislature. And that was like a of Democrats, of Democrats yeah. exactly, who support specifically and who are extremely explicit about tenant protections. So if you look at kind of the, the districts that do not only have high tenant, tenant, tenant population, they had high tenant turnout can, in those elections. Can you give us some examples of kind of um, specifically how renter political power was exercised on maybe some specific legislators? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so this is why kind of there's the, 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 that each session doesn't happen really independently, right? There's, there's things, there's a memory, um, and things build over time. And so, um, back in 2017, we, 
we ran a campaign for um, House Bill 2004, which was what we considered kind of the gold standard for, for just cause and for lifting the ban on rent control or, uh, and rent stabilization in Oregon. And that, that would have been more ideal, right? We would have been able to, to have so much more local control about what regulating rental markets looks like if that were the case. So, 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 so city by city would have been able to, to, to create their own rental restrictions. Yeah, that, yeah. Right, and okay. then it was a really strong just cause standard, right? Yeah. Like it was a very clear like ban on no cause evictions as, as this kind of speculative market tool. Um, and and essentially what happened during that session was that there was one holdout in the Senate that refused to not even discuss it, but also was pretty blatant about um, because of he himself being a landlord. He was blatant about he thought that it was a bad idea um, to regulate the market this way. And this um, is a for obvious, yes, and this was a long-standing incumbent Democrat who had been in the legislature for upwards of 20 years and been in the Senate for about 15. Was this someone and, from the Portland area or somewhere yeah. else? Okay. Mm-hmm. His name is Senator Rod Monroe. Um, and actually, not only was he in the Portland area, um, his district is actually one of the, the most populated by tenants themselves, right? A very high um, percentage of tenants live in his district, and he actually owns property in that district. And so what, what happened? So essentially, he got primaried. Um, after you know refusing to to vote on this issue um, in the legislature in 2017 during the 2018 election, he ran a re-election campaign, you know, thinking that it would be you know just like any other incumbent campaign, and it's extremely difficult, right? Any incumbent seat is really difficult to take, especially in highly you know longtime Democratic or really blue districts like he has, and um, uh, Shamia Fagan. Um, entered the race, um, and then another, actually another uh, community-based person also entered the race, a longtime activist, his name is Casey Jama, also entered the race, and both really set the tone for, like, this is actually about what your constituents who are a majority tenants are asking for. So they were really able to reshape that local race, and essentially Shamia Fagan was able to primary him on that issue. So once this landlord legislator who had opposed tenant, some new tenant protections was primaried, how did that change the conversations that you were having with other lawmakers in the Oregon legislature? I mean, were they, I assume that they were now more scared of you or scared of you for the first time. Yeah, I would say that conscientious, right? Like, um, and, you know, and realizing, I mean, I'll like, I think, I, I think, um, I think they should be scared, right? I think they should be, um, they should be thinking about what is the, the, the level of political power that tenants are building as it, with regard to like what their real outcomes are, right? So it's not about political positioning or not about ideology necessarily. It's really about, okay, can I actually stay in the home? that I've made for myself, even if I've been here for a year or I've been here for 12 years, right? So I think that that that, that level of political conscientiousness and fear, if you will, is, is, is well placed and well put. I mean, I think that, um, you know, the messages we were sending across the state were heard as well. So there was another race down in Southern Oregon where housing and tenant issues became really critical, and that was an open seat that was left by um, – by a senator who who decided not to to, to go for re-election after an appointment, mm-hmm. and so it was an open seat, and we were able to again, in the same way, tenant activists and CAT 
in, in that community were, were able to encourage tenants themselves to say what is important to us as constituents, and were able to shift that election um, to, to bring in a senator who, who was able to, to, to speak to the tenant call hmm. and say, yes, I'm going to support tenant issues, and that's Senator Jeff Golden. So maybe we can zoom out a little bit, and maybe you can give us a little bit of a sense of the landscape of what, uh, either in Portland or Portland statewide, what some of these kind of uh, rent increases that uh, tenants were, were, were facing at this time, or are facing at this time. Yeah, so CAT runs a statewide hotline, so we get to hear from folks as far as like Joseph, Oregon on the border um, in eastern Oregon all the way to, you know, every every single you know, area of the Portland metro area, the Tri-County area, um, the coast, the gorge, southern Oregon, um, rural, suburban, right, all yeah. across the state. So we get calls everywhere. Um, what's interesting is that it was really, really consistent um, that rent increases and then evictions in terms of the no-cause form, right, mm-hmm. the speculative forms or the unfair forms that we, we know of were happening across the state. Um, and the, the kind of the, the things that we were seeing that folks were using, um, property owners, managers, um, landlords were using kind of using these tools as a part of their business model to be able to bring their units up to market. So if you think about bringing your unit up to market in Joseph, Oregon, for instance, out in eastern Oregon, like um, what, what that means is you had been paying essentially $500, $550 for your, for your apartment, and then all of a sudden it goes to $1,100 out of nowhere. Wow. Right? What does that mean to you? Well, you've been living there for 15 years. You haven't seen a repair in 10 years. How it just it it's not logical, and that was a really common story, um, especially for rural areas. Um, and then even more common were the kind of increases that we were seeing in more metropolitan areas like Eugene, like Medford, or just more populated areas, um, Corvallis, um, and and Portland in the Portland metro area is that rent hikes were 30, 40 percent pretty consistently, or you would be getting. You know, um, what Liam, you and I were talking about before, you might be getting a 20 or a 15 percent increase, but a couple of times a year, yeah. right, that then aggregate mm-hmm. bumps up to like 18, 20 percent over the year. As you mentioned earlier, the bill that was under consideration a couple of years ago would have given cities and counties the ability to set many of their own rent control rules. What ultimately passed this year was a cap of a 7% increase annually plus inflation, so roughly 10% we're talking. How did you um, kind of get from, or what was the process of getting from what was before to what you what you have now? Tenants realized, oh, rent control as a policy and as, as a tool stops displacement, or at yeah. least, you know, gets, gets to, at the scale and speed that we're talking about, um, gives folks some relief in this moment. And so that's why folks started landing on rent control as an option, and we started off, you know, really like saying, you know, tenants are saying the need is like, yeah, let's no, do no more than two or three percent a year because mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's reality of like your own budget. Like you right. can only eke out that margin every year in terms of your own income. Um, and then, you know, I think it was the negotiation back and forth, right? Yeah. And and really kind of working across, you know, the different ideologies to say the reality is this is an in order to really make an impact on the crisis that we're experiencing in terms of affordability and who's rent burdened or housing cost burdened, we need a really bold policy that actually lets that, 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 
stops it in its tracks. So, and so that, that kind of that kind of language, um, but also that kind of thinking was something that we had to, to move through. Yeah. So, so I want to ask about this. There's, as you may be aware, there's a similar policy on the table in California that would set a sort of similar rent cap at, at the 7% plus, plus inflation. There's a lot of criticism from some folks on the left that that is uh, too high. Um, I know that uh, uh, there's been similar criticism uh, from some groups in Oregon. Uh, is 7% plus inflation too high? Yeah, absolutely. We believe, you know, a lot of our members and just kind of, again, through that negotiation process I was just describing, like, yeah, our members were like, you know, we, we anchored at something much more reasonable for, for an average, if not low-income, renter's experience and, and budget mm-hmm. at 2 and 3%, right? So that's more realistic, something that looks more like what New York has yeah. um, that actually can help stabilize communities. And, and so, so I think um, the reality is, is now, you know, we've, we've, we've done what folks thought impossible, which is breach the conversation and breach, breach the policy kind of obstacle, which was n- no state will ever regulate the rent yeah. in this way. We've done that, and we're really excited to keep, keep pushing forward. So are, are you viewing this less so as a as a uh, victory in and of itself and more so as this is the first foray into something more substantive in terms of restricting rent increases statewide? Yeah, I think I think there's there's both and right. Like I think we see it as a victory in that like it opens the door and 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 a lot of times our tenants are like this is more than just a door. This is a floodgate, right? Because the story really is that you know this doesn't end homelessness today. It doesn't stop folks from having to couch surf or having to struggle to get find new housing because of you know. Uh, some of this, the, the, the discriminatory screening criteria that some landlords might use, right? So it doesn't stop those things, but what it does do are two things. is It stabilizes so that rent gouging doesn't exist in the same way, and that puts, puts, puts speculative landlords on, on notice that um, decision makers are starting to pay attention and, and, and move with their constituents who are asking for a very practical need, which is to stabilize their living conditions and their communities. So I think we get excited about that. And then the third thing that Oregon's law does specifically, that a lot of our tenants across the different, you know, places rural or urban, was that it actually gives just cause protections in a way that allows them to organize with each other. Um, so, so it eliminates no cause protections after a year. So if you've been in your place for more than a year, you have the ability to call your landlord out if they're retaliating in a way that you've never had been able to do before. In terms of advice you would give to the California tenants movement to actually enact something possibly more powerful, do they need to primary someone? Well, I think they're poised to do that for themselves, <laughs> really, yeah. right? Like, so I was really excited to hear that you're, you know, you guys are excited to, or you want to know more about kind of the movement building work that we're doing up and down the West Coast, and, and that's exactly it. Um, we definitely don't, we take advice from each other for sure, right? We support one another and hear, like, what are our best lessons learned, because that's how we are able to, to understand kind of the, the, the strategies that work in our places, um, definitely the California tenants um, have a lot of energy going in, in different um, different local communities around the state, and definitely um, we're learning a lot from that as well, you know. Um, I would say that, you know, some of their fight is even, you know, at a different, it, 
in terms of like the policy dial, they're much more progressive than we are, right? Like for, mm-hmm. like, for instance, the city of Richmond has a really strong just cause um, law that, that we, you know, we'd love to see, but we also know that Long Beach is looking at relocation assistance similar to Portland's, right? So mm-hmm. I think it runs the gamut of different, um, a different policy choices, but I think what's really clear and, and, and what would be really valuable is a strong, a strong consistency from, from community to community in, in California that is triggered or kind of framed by the need of tenants across the state. Could, could you guys have done what you did without primarying um, a reluctant Democrat? I think the message was dramatic and, um, you know, for good dramatic effect, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, I mean, I think there's more than one path to to a similar outcome. So I want to turn to the, the other big piece of legislation, the one that uh, allows for fourplexes in many single-family zones um, uh, in the metro area and, and in other areas of the of the. Portland metro area and other kind of larger areas of the state as well. Um, there's a similar legislation in, in California. Again, as you may be aware, that piece here did not have the support of kind of uh, uh, renter groups or groups representing, uh, many of them representing low-income um, uh, communities. But, but in fact, your group did support this legislation, and, and I'm uh, hoping you can explain what, what, what it is about it that, uh, that, that garnered your support. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where, you know, you walk down that list of the differences between Oregon and, and California, yeah. right? And the huge difference is that we're a much smaller state. Yeah. Um, the industries, you know, have the same dynamics, though, right? Real estate um, uh, definitely still still is, is a really strong industry here. So I wouldn't say that those dynamics don't exist. But I would, would say in particular the reason why Community Alliance attendants supported opening up single-family zones has more to do with fair housing mm. and the opportunity to make a choice around it. So our interests weren't just about trying to increase the supply. Yeah. That is one of the effects and one of the impacts. But we believe that the choice can be made to do it differently, and doing it differently actually means addressing and redressing historic inequity and historic discrimination. And so the, and we all know how in the U.S. housing history, it was used to segregate. It was used to reduce over time community wealth for communities of color, particularly black and indigenous people here in Oregon. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just knowing the history of the Oregon territories in general. So do, and so, mm-hmm. oh, do you think allowing fourplexes to be built will remedy that? Because I, I think there's a lot of skepticism, at least here in California, of, okay, you can end single-family only zoning, but if unless there's uh, maybe upzoning of a different degree, it's not going to really get low-income people of color into those neighborhoods. If you have the, the intentionality to to make something anti-racist and and redress discrimination, historic discrimination, it will do that, right? Like, if everyone at the table agrees that that is one of the goals, then it will be integrated into the choices you make. If you don't say that at the outset, yeah. then, of course, it will not do that. So, so what specifically that is would what you, we're saying yeah, at what the specifically outset. Yeah, what specifically would you, would you want to see as part of that, if you will, to, to achieve the outcome you want to see? Yeah, absolutely. And we're having this discussion because the city of Portland is, 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 is out in front, right? And they're saying, yep, we've, you know, we're working on amendments right now to Portland's um, infill, infill code change project, and, and specifically it's about providing 
affordable incentives and offsets, right, to ensure that the affordability happens, right, because it's about increasing the amount of types of housing that allow people of different incomes to have access to these neighborhoods. And that in and of itself, um, and encouraging, you know, uh, encouraging using those market-based tools to allow folks of color in particular mm-hmm. access to neighborhoods they've never had before. And so what you're talking about, just to make clear for our listeners, is Portland's working on something that would implement what the state has, has uh, you know, just did this year, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, so, so for instance, like a specific policy that we're looking for yeah. is instead of just um, so now the 2001 allows, uh, not allows for, but yeah. requires, yes, mm-hmm. requires the, legalizes a fourplex. Right. In Portland, we're talking about legalizing and encouraging, providing additional incentive for a sixplex if half of those units are affordable below 60% AMI. I see. Okay. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. So it, it sounds like you've, you feel pretty confident that you could have passed the rent cap bill without... Um, a, a zoning reform bill also getting through. I think I think um, we had done that work prior, so I don't know. Back in, if you know about the, our we had a ban on inclusionary zoning mm-hmm. um, uh, for about fifteen or so years in Oregon, and so CAT, amongst other organizations that are really similar to the groups that supported two thousand one. Um, it's 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 kind of being conscientious that that's the thread that we picked back up again was the fight that we had for inclusionary zoning back in 20, 2016. Okay. And that was a 10-year fight, right? So it was a 15-year ban that w- we had been working on for more than 10 years. So Aleem is giving me dirty looks now because we're actually late for another interview. Thank you so much um, for taking the time to talk with us. All right. Take care. Thanks, guys. The real question is not how they did this is is what this, happens right? is this gonna work right right does right. it work so yeah. in the case of minneapolis and in the case of oregon um and new york with and, their new, bills. and new york yeah. we'll we'll see okay what what's actually going to happen on the ground level with these so yeah. something what, to keep in mind and yeah. hopefully we'll be able to track right is there more building uh are people less displaced uh yeah. you know all those sorts of questions yes yeah. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um okay ready for the outro yep Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at MLevinReports. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. My Twitter handle is at DillonLiam. Keep on reading myself and Liam. Uh, Keep on rating and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back in two weeks.